Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and like the proverbial groundhog to the proverbial winter, we are back in February, having seen our shadows. Good news, folks, six more weeks of shows at least. The Groundhog Jim is not proverbial, is it? It's a rodent, Len. It's a real thing. I've always been a little intrigued by the whole meteorological <laughs> aspect of, you know, why this singular rodent we're putting, you know, whether we buy salt or shovels or book trips to Florida on the back of the, the Punxsutawney Phil. Yeah, what do, uh, what do rodents have with uh, meteorology? I don't, science is complicated, Jim. I don't know. I don't know. I do want to share one thing that just happened to Nancy and myself. We were sitting in our living room. We turned around, the cats were focused on the wood stove. I want to stress that the wood stove had no wood in it. They had no fire, but they were staring at it. And there was suddenly a noise inside of the wood stove. And my daughter was like, ooh, there's a rat in the wood stove. And I look in and like, no, it's not a rat. It's a flying squirrel that had climbed down our chimney. Well, first of all, I, I was surprised how much they actually look like Rocket J Squirrel from the Bullwinkle show. They're cute and small. <laughs> that was literally going to be my first question. <laughs> they are. They, they're surprising that the people who did it were very much a model. But for me, the fact that it was cold enough that a squirrel came down the chimney to hide in a wood stove, that doesn't bode well for the next six weeks, Len. It's, it's getting desperate, Jim. I guess so. Speaking of what people do when it gets extremely cold, they go to Florida, which is where you've been for, what, a week now? Yeah, a little over a week. We came down a while ago. First thing we did was to go to Disney Springs mm -hmm. the afternoon of our arrival, and I tried out the new Pizza Point at the Edison. It's a walk-in counter-service pizza place. Mm -hmm. As you know, Jim, I live part of the time in Manhattan. New York City has this reputation for good pizza, so I think I know of what I speak. Mm -hmm. It's good pizza at Pizza Point. They've got both the traditional square pizza, the so-called Sicilian style. The toppings are good. The cheese is good. The sauce tastes good. The crust is crispy and flavorful. You like to get a nice char on it. It's all good pizza. Here's the thing. In New York, the most expensive slice of pizza I've ever had by a pizza vendor that has stayed in business more than a few weeks mm -hmm. is around $4.50 in Manhattan, a place, Jim, that is known for, let's say, exuberant rents. <laughs> right? I would have gone with exorbitant, but exuberant is good too. Because they make you yell when you yeah. see the bill. Right? New York is not a cheap place in which to do business. No, no. But four fifty. Mm -hmm. is the upper limit of a one-topping standard Sicilian slice of pie. Mm -hmm. At Pizza Point in downtown Disney, the same slice is $7. Ah. $7 for a slice of pizza is inexplicable to me. I don't understand it. Like I said, the pizza is good. By any reasonable metric, the pizza is good. The square pizza is good. They've also got a huge slice mm -hmm. of traditional round Neapolitan pie. Also very good. Good crust. I thought it could have been a little crispier on the bottom. But overall, the above average slice of pizza, no matter how you look at it, it's the $7 thing I can't get past on it. Almost this time last year, hadn't they opened that brand new pizza place where literally you pick the toppings, they put Blaze, in Blaze Pizza, Bla yeah. Yes. A full Blaze Pizza, I think with one topping mm -hmm. in most of the United States is $6.50. I think it's mm -hmm. $8.50 in Disney Springs. Coincidentally, the same price as in San Jose, California. Mm -hmm. not the place that people talk about reasonable costs for things either. Okay. Okay, so let's say $7, whatever, on average, $8, $8 whatever. The pizza is slightly better, I think, at Blaze mm -hmm. because you get the toppings and it's reasonably fresh. 
and you have more choices, $7 for a slice is difficult there. That's where I'm at. We're heading out in the next couple of days to try the Edison and the Hideaway and a couple of other places. But so far, I mean, and this is this is sort of the thing that, that I am having trouble with. I think it's fine pizza. It's the $7 thing. Why is it 50% more expensive than pizza you get in Manhattan? I can't wrap my head around that. When you think about STK across the street there, it, there's something about this corner of Disney Springs where, I mean, it, it, again, it's it's the elevated section. You know, think about it. You've got to maybe it's, walk up Maybe it's the altitude. Maybe it's the altitude, Jim. You're paying for the view. <laughs> I was going to go with people's brains get vapor lock, but okay, your thing works too. There we go. Speaking of uh, dining, I did get this tip, and this is for anyone who's thinking about using the Disney dining plan in 2018. You know, on the new dining plan, Jim, you can get an alcoholic or a specialty beverage on the new dining plan. So the price of the, the plan went up, I think, uh, about $8 over the last year or two. I think it's just under $72 per adult for the standard dining plan now. But but you can get an alcoholic drink with dinner on it now. Mm-hmm. The question always comes up, how expensive of an alcoholic drink can one get under the dining plan? So I've asked Disney this. I've asked a number of servers this question, and here's the answer that I've got. From a Disney-owned restaurant, so anyone at the resorts, or most of the ones at the resorts, most of the ones in the parks, you can order a drink that costs up to $21. Hmm. And that counts as your drink on the dining plan. If you're at a third-party restaurant, the limit might be $16. Wow. But those are the numbers to keep in mind as you're contemplating for your next Disney trip, whether to get the dining plan or not. So the alcoholic component that you can get on that one drink, $21. Of course, you can always get a milkshake and get a soda too or a water. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking at getting that glass of wine, then it's going to be up to $21. Here's the other interesting thing I le- learned, Jim. The dining plan went into effect, obviously, January 1st, 2018. But it was first announced in very late 2017. We get the alcohol component. So like the last couple months of 2017 is when Disney announced this. Here's where the problems arise. People were able to make dining reservations for January of 2018 in July of 2017, six months in advance, right? Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about the dining plan now is now that people know that they can order drinks, they're taking longer for their meals because they're considering their drink as essentially another course of the meal. Like you sit down and the waiter says, or the waitstaff says, by the way, you can order a drink with your meal. And as soon as the diners hear that, a lot of them want to see either the cocktail menu menu or the wine list, right? So the waiter then has to explain what counts as an alcoholic beverage on the dining plan and then go get the menu, bring it back, and people can look at that. And in the course of deciding what they want to drink with dinner, they also have to consider what they're going to eat, right? Mm -hmm. It's taking the server two or three extra trips to the table to get that information and get the drink served. That's adding 10 to 15 minutes to every meal because of the number of tables that the server has to service uh, as they're going through. And as a result, people are now waiting in January about up to 45 minutes longer to get to the reservation than they were prior to the introduction of the uh, alcoholic component of the drink menu. This can't make the people who have reservations for Be Our Guest happy. No, 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 no. That was the original story about that restaurant. What, six months out? They had to lower their capacity estimates. And I think you said once the typical dinner time is, what, 75 minutes? And they were stretching it to, like, 90? Yeah, so Disney thinks that it could be as little as 45 minutes for dinner. I guess if you've got small kids and you're sort of hurrying through the meal mm-hmm. and you don't care when when the food is delivered, and we've all been there as parents, like yeah. bring this food out as soon as it's ready. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be at the same time. 
45 minutes is a stretch. I mean, maybe if you're just ordering the entree and mm-hmm. drinks, that's it. Yeah, I think typically with a couple of courses, it's more like an hour. Yeah, but Disney seeing it stretch out to be you know 75 to 90 minutes oh. in some cases. And that's wreaking havoc with the templates because if you're doing two or three table turns by 8 o'clock starting at 5.30, by the time you get to the 7.30 reservations, you're running way behind at that point. Yeah, you're in the weeds. Oh, yeah, geez. and there's, there's just no recovering from it. It's not like you can add tables. Okay. Yeah, to the restaurant. It'll be interesting to see whether the alcoholic component stays, whether they go with a much simpler menu, or whether they start in June to just stretch out the templates. But the problem with stretching out the templates is mm. if you're assuming that every meal takes an hour, then every meal takes an hour and 15 minutes, you're basically losing one seating a night at every restaurant, and Disney's not going to give up that revenue. No, no. This one definitely bears watching. But like you said, in, in a world where... People are are forced to book their dining reservations 180 days out. This is going to be a slow roll to a fix. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where you really have to consider a year in advance any changes that you're likely to make to the dining plan that are going to impact the dining times. Wow. Thanks for the heads up about that, but oh, I feel for the servers. Yeah, they're also they're also being impacted on on tips, right? Because you're you're serving. No, you, you will eventually exactly. serve fewer tables per night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, I heard uh, I heard one other thing. Speaking of servers, have you heard that Disney's having trouble finding housekeepers? There's this weird thing going on with immigration. <laughs> you know, I know people don't like it when we get political, but with these sorts of positions, Disney had traditionally gone a certain route for when it came to where it would recruit people for housekeeping positions from. And right. people who are afraid to come into the country won't take these jobs. And that's another reason why you're seeing those large units being you know, sort of grafted to the wall of Pop Century and, and, and that sort of thing. You know, anything that makes it easier for a housekeeper to get in and out of a room and churn it that much faster. They're asking staff to do that much more and work that much harder because, honestly, they're having trouble filling positions. Yeah, there are a couple of things that's causing Disney some headaches right now. One is they can't hire housekeepers fast enough. So Mm. we've heard that Disney's offering a $1,300 signing bonus to housekeepers Mm. now. And that's one way that they're trying to get enough people in to service their rooms. But that also comes on the heels of the things that we've talked about earlier where Disney's started offering guests a certain amount of money or credit per day not to use housekeeping. Mm-hmm. And the thing that you mentioned about going to simplification of shampoos and toiletries and things like that, where it's just easier to get in and out of the room faster. But I hear that Disney's also not competitive in terms of wages. So it'll be interesting to see whether Disney boosts its hourly rate for housekeepers. My understanding is they're paying $1 or $2 an hour less than area hotels and uh, Universal. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's something that they have to do. But anyway, that was super interesting. I also heard that possibly, and this is, I haven't verified this, so take it with a grain of salt, that part of the reason why you're not seeing a lot of hotel room availability on site right now is that Disney can't service all the rooms. Therefore, it can't sell as many rooms. So, you know, in order to sell the room, you need housekeeping for it. And if you don't have the housekeepers, you can't sell it. Oh, God. And the other, the other problem that you see with the housekeepers is, you know, ever since the shooting in Las Vegas last year, Disney's asked its housekeepers to go into every room every day mm-hmm. and look in every part of every room for weapons. Mm-hmm. That's what they have to do. That's also taking some time. So Disney's in this pinch where they're not offering high enough wages to attract people fr- away from other area hotels. They're asking the housekeepers to do more, but they're short-staffed. So that's they're, they're in a pinch right now. I was just talking with somebody who works at security at the resort, and they were just talking about putting this additional burden 
on the housekeepers. And it's led to some awkward situations with some guests who don't understand why the member of the Disney resort staff is is insistent on getting into the room. And to look in every room and every closet. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. And this security veteran was talking about said anybody who's taken the tram ridden over to the park has heard at some point that part of the spiel where it's like, by the way, if you have a firearm with you, please stay on the tram and return to your car because, you know, this will cause an issue of security. And that's Mm -hmm. the thing this guy from security was saying is like, there are more weapons in cars on Disney property than there are in hotel rooms. And it's just sort of like anybody who's determined to get a firearm in a Disney resort would go that route rather than schlepping it into their room. But yeah, I think what they're looking for is 50 weapons, not one. You'll be able to conceal one. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, it's the 50. Yeah. That's the issue. And plus, there's a liability issue, right? If, God forbid, something happens and Disney did not do no, the checking. No, then, that's it exactly. Then there's a liability there. Yeah. They have to be able to argue the point that we made a concerted effort. Right, exactly. I understand why they're doing it. I mean, it's for guest safety. I, I totally get it. So speaking about uh, other uh, resort news, you see that Disney is now offering mini van service. This is their service that they're uh, co-branding with Lyft. From Disney property to the airport, to MCO, one way, it's $150 for a minivan to the airport. Now, don't get me wrong. I guess we were talking the initial price point of what was $20 for the minivan to Bobber on property. Yeah. And for $150, it's what, as many as six people? Is that correct? Or Six people, yeah. I actually did a round trip to the airport on Uber the other day just to see what the cost was. So depending on the time of day that you go... It's mm-hmm. somewhere between $35 and $60 okay. for a regular Uber. It's, let's say, double that mm-hmm. for uh, one of the XL versions, which hold up to six people. So $70 to $120. Disney's charging $150. So it's considerably more than the same service that you would get if you didn't use the Disney branded service. The benefit, I think, that Disney's pitching here, is, especially versus Magical Express, is you get to spend more time either at the parks or at the resort. They're saying um, if you want to get to the airport, the minivan could leave in as little as two hours before your flight. It's hard to argue, especially these days, if you use the Magical Express, for example, they want you headed to the airport three hours? Three hours now is four hours during peak periods. There we go. So the question is, is whether it's worth $150 to stay two more hours in the park. The answer to that isn't obviously no to me. It might be yes. Mm Mm-hmm. The thing I think that would pitch me towards it, I mean, I would probably use Uber or Lyft just straight without the Disney thing, but let's say you're using the Disney service to get consistent customer service and whatnot. If you had something like TSA PreCheck or Global Entry, where you could be absolutely sure that you're not going to stand in that long line in Orlando airport's security, if you go TSA PreCheck or Global Entry and you can bypass that, then I think, yeah, leaving two hours prior to your flight, absolutely no problem. And then, you know, spending the extra couple hours in the park, I think, is worthwhile. So I think it does make sense in some scenarios. I think 150 is a little expensive, but this is one of those things like the new FastPass test that they're doing for club level. It's one of those things where Disney's just trying to figure out how much money they can make. Yeah, this is the Walt Disney Company of today. No revenue stream unexplored. You know, when you look at the transportation ideas that have just been tried out in the past year, the bus system that was taking people from backstage park to park. Right. I don't think that lasted three months before they pulled the plug. It was an interesting idea. I think the implementation of it was wonky, but there's only so much that they can do given the roads that they have and the methods of transportation that they have. I honestly wouldn't be surprised if 
once this whole infrastructure project is completed, uh, if they don't circle back on that in some form. Speaking of infrastructure, I got to test the new flyover bypass at the Magic Kingdom, where you, if you're going to a Magic Kingdom resort, you don't have to stop by the toll booths. And let me tell you, Jim, that is an improvement. Ooh, okay. So test, did they had just thrown it open or? Just one day last week, just threw it open. So now you, you just sort of go to the right mm-hmm. and you end up on the road that takes you to either, you know, the Wilderness Lodge, Fort Wilderness on, on the right or Polynesian, Grand Floridian, Shades of Green and the, the golf courses on the left. It was really easy. I actually had dinner uh, the other night at Artist Point mm-hmm. and it was really easy to get in and out of the Wilderness Lodge. Much, much better. Than it was okay. before. So, so there are improvements happening around property. I don't think the flyover route mm-hmm. is the permanent one. I think it's sort of a bypass right now. I expect to see something a little more permanent. Basically, it's a paved road. I'll give it that. I don't think, it, but it doesn't look finished. So, okay. I expect to see more construction there. Very cool. Speaking of mini, yep. I guess we started this story in November, and what made me think to circle back on it finally was. January 22nd, Minnie Mouse, after 90 years on the job, finally got a star on uh, the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And for this event, Bob Iger turned out and he brought Katy Perry with him. That's what I think of when I think of Hollywood Walk of Fame. I think of Minnie Mouse, Bob Iger, and Katy Perry. Well, you got to understand that Bob just paid a lot of money to bring American Idol back from the dead. In fact, the irony is Disney made this deal with Fox out ahead of the umpteen billion dollar acquisition but disney has a lot riding or at least abc does when Mm -hmm. the show comes back in march so it was kind of bizarre to have katie there not necessarily to support Minnie, but to sort of hype the fact that oh by the way american idol's coming back and it's going to be an abc and please watch is katie perry going to be a judge or something yes she's one of the judges on the show got it got it got it okay we had started uh, talking about as part of the chronological disney series about a time when Disney was looking to to do something, sort of turn Minnie into a Katy Perry. In fact, I've got an, an interview with, that Michael Eisner did in December of 1985 with the New York Times. And as part of that, that interview, the Eisner was asked, what if the Imagineers got planned for the parks coming up? And his response was that at the Disney theme parks, 1986 will be the year of Minnie Mouse. So he described her as a little-used character up to now. Uh, Minnie will introduce her own line of clothing and possibly rock music. She will not spend the next 50 years sitting in the back behind Mickey. Huh. And the reason that, that Eisner mentioned rock music as part of the plans for Minnie was that when he was over at Paramount, you know, prior to coming to Disney, uh, we're talking specifically April of 83, mm-hmm. Paramount released Flashdance. And this was the first film that Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson worked on for Paramount. Of course, Jerry would come over to Disney and, and do things like The Rock and, of course, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. But they made this very MTV-influenced movie for just $7 million. And it went on to gross... $200 million, a huge return on investment. Mm-hmm. But the thing that particularly caught Eisner's attention was that the Flashdown soundtrack, which Paramount had a chunk of, they sold over 700,000 copies in the first two weeks the movie was in theaters. Oh, yeah. You couldn't, uh, couldn't turn on a radio without hearing Irene Cara. Yeah. And o- overall, 6 million copies of that album were sold. Then uh, Flashdance, Oh, What a Feeling, goes on to be the Academy Award winning, you know, wins the best song for that year. And so very next year, here's Eisner over at Disney in October of 84. And he really wants to replicate 
that flashdance phenomenon uh, for the mouse house. So Eisner is being told by the Bass Brothers, uh, the folks who basically bought all the Disney stock and helped put him in place. It's like, look, you have to create new revenue stream. Again, you know, look how things haven't changed at the Walt Disney Company land. Right. And one of the ways to do that was by taking character, little-used characters and finding new ways to use them. And so what's interesting about this same time is Madonna's debut album is coming out. During that period, you know, here's Eisner looking at Madonna and looking at Flashdance and wondering about Minnie. And it's like, could we pull a Madonna with Minnie? Just about the same time, the photos started showing up in Playboy. And it was like, eh, maybe, <laughs> maybe we don't. Not. <laughs> maybe. You know, in fact, it, so Disney then pivots to Cindy Lauper. But at the same time, I mean, Eisner's really serious about this whole notion of Minnie is Madonna. In fact, he reaches out to Jay Wilding, who was a producer of, of some of the tracks for Madonna's earliest recordings. And he asked Jay to work on this album that they're calling Totally Mini. And, and the idea was that in sort of an inversion of the Flashdance situation, they'll create the soundtrack and then they'll back into all the other stuff. The soundtrack won't be a spinoff from the big product. And but now you need a performer. You need somebody to voice Minnie Mouse. Let me let me pause here, Jim, and say to this point when you're saying Michael Eisner wants Minnie Mouse to be a recording star. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, again, the drugs were better in the eighties than, <laughs> than they were today. Because looking looking back at it now, you know, thirty years later, this sounds like the craziest concept in the world. Why does Michael Eisner want Minnie Mouse to be a recording star? But you gotta remember, in the eighties, we had artists like Weird Al Yankovic. I mean and, and Weird Al is Still with us, thank God. But, mm. you know, he was doing these parody videos. You had, who was the duck guy, the DJ who turned? God, Disco Duck, yes. Disco yes. Duck. Rick right. Dees, thank you. Mm -hmm. So there were these gimmick ideas, if you will, that the public was consuming. So I see how Eisner thinking that Minnie Mouse would be a star. It wasn't completely as far-fetched then as it seems now. They're looking for a voice for Minnie Mouse. And the last time we've heard Minnie Mouse was in 74, which was for the record album that Mickey's Christmas Carol was based on. Disney holds auditions for the first time in years for Minnie Mouse. And who ends up getting the role but Rusi Taylor, who 31 years later, Rusi is still voicing Minnie Mouse. Wow. Yeah. So now... Word is starting to leak out around the company about what Eisner wants to do. And you got to remember, Michael's only just come through the door and there's a lot of older Disney employees and they're, they're really nervous about this whole mini Madonna thing. And so yeah. Eisner actually has Jody Rubin, then head of marketing for Disney licensing. She does an interview for the Disney Newsreel, which is in-house publication for cast members. And Rubin says, look, we're not completely changing Minnie. We're just bringing back her original, independent, more feisty personality. We're bringing back her fun. Also, as part of the interview, just to nail home the idea, not Madonna, not Madonna. They said the template for Minnie is a successful, independent female performers along the lines of a Pat Benatar or a Cindy Lauper. But even so, it means ditching the polka dot dress and the big yellow pumps that Minnie has worn since the late 20s. And now it's 1980s. So it's hot colors, it's flashy jewelry, it's trendy clothes and high top sneakers. And here's Disney, you know, attempting to change Minnie's image. And if you look at, if you've seen any photos of Katy Perry at the Hollywood Walk of Fame ceremony in January of this year, mm -hmm. she's in Minnie's outfit. She came dressed in polka dots. That's funny. 
she wanted to be as much like Minnie as she could be. And so we get the album. We get 10 songs on the album. And now it becomes a question of, okay, we need to start walking this version of Minnie, which is now branded as totally Minnie, as in Valley Girl, totally Valley Speak, that kind of thing. Jim, what kind of songs are on this album? One of them, for example, was a redo of Tony Basil's Hey Mickey. Yeah. But they got top vocals from the period to perform on. Brenda Russell, Carla Bonoff, Desiree Goyette. It's female empowerment songs from a cartoon mouse. These are all covers or there's some original recordings on here? No, the bulk of them are original numbers. In fact, if you go over to YouTube, there's a startling number of them there. And now you've got the album and you've got to promote it. So you've now got Disney for the Parks has created a walk-around version of Minnie that features this outfit. And they... They begin to do things like have her do a drop-in on the Merv Griffin show. Imagine if you're sitting at home in the afternoon in the 80s and you're watching Merv Griffin, normally stayed sort of conservative yep. afternoon talk show, definitely not a Maury Povich or something like that. And you see Minnie Mouse walk on. I'm thinking immediately you you open a window because you think you're suffering from carbon monoxide poisoning. That's that you're hallucinating something, right? Like that's very true. And in fact, you kind of wonder also what they were smoking in their offices at Disney, because one of the ideas that they seriously explored and actually approached the NFL about was having totally mini star in the halftime show for the 1987 Super Bowl. This was another era, Len. It was a different time, Jim, and that's all we can say. Yeah. <laughs> I'm surprised they didn't have a Minnie Mouse and U2 collaboration, like Bono and Minnie doing something. The more embarrassing part of this is that they did convince Elton John. At one point, they put a television special into production and basically convinced Elton that what he should do is appear on camera singing Don't Go Breaking My Heart with Minnie. You know, Minnie Mouse and Kiki D have the same vocal range. I am totally down with this, Jim. I thought you were going to say that he was going to do Minnie and the Jets, which, no. again, let me, let me just say right now, if I ever need to perform in a drag show, that's my song. Okay. Go ahead. All right. But you can actually watch this. The Totally Minnie show is on YouTube. I think you and I traded, traded clips of this, and this was the thing where we both looked at it and said, how did we not know about this golden performance ahead of time? Like, last year sometime, we, we were both trading clips on it. And we're like, did you even know this existed? Mm. <laughs> it's worth noting here that while Minnie did not wind up hosting the halftime show, the 87 Super Bowl is significant in Disney history because uh, this is when Phil Sims led the Giants to a, a victory over the Broncos. But this is the first time that somebody turned to a camera and said, I'm going to Disney World. And supposedly Sims was the only person who did it without being handed a large check. But it was Jane Eisner who was sitting at home with Michael watching this and going, that's a slogan. Oh, yeah. From here on in, Disney quietly reached out to both teams and said, hey, when you win, turn to the camera and say this, and we will come at you with the large pile of money. Wait, so you're saying Disney did that for every Super Bowl after that, or this was the su- first Super Bowl in which they did it? This was the first Super Bowl where it happened spontaneously. Wait, so you're saying Phil Sims did not get paid by the Disney Corporation to say, I'm going to Disney World after he won the Super Bowl. He just ad-libbed that because he really was? 
Yes. Going to Disney World? Do you really get well, a t- let me ah. Let me just verify exactly what you're saying here, because that's that's a, it's kind of an incredible story. He just winged it, and it became the catchphrase for the next decade. In the, the Disney touch, that's the way the story is written up. Likewise, in Eisner's own biography, he talks about how his wife went, that's a slogan. Oh, it totally makes sense. I mean, that's you, you can't ask for you, you can't plan that kind of advertising. I mean, something mm-hmm. like that, that's, that's lightning striking. Okay, so if any of our listeners know anyone who knows anyone who knows Phil Sims, Let's see if we can verify this story. Yeah, it was a reporter on the field who asked him, what are you doing next? And he just said, oh, well, I'm taking the family to Disney World. And it was just, I mean, this, not the way it was declaimed in further ads, but Jane's antenna went up as soon as he said that. And it's like, holy crap, you got to do something with that, Michael. And that became a thing. Getting back to Minnie and now that we're talking about the parks, at both Disneyland and Disney World, again, to support this whole totally mini thing, they mm-hmm. created a new daytime parade where it's still the Madonna flash dance idea. So the gimmick of this parade is Minnie is shooting a music video on floats that are rolling down the street. So Mickey's her producer, Donald's the director, Goofy's the dance coach. The part that always kind of disturbed me was that her backup singers were Snow White, Cinderella, Alice from Alice in Wonderland, and on occasion, Mary Poppins. It's an all-girl band. That's fine. I mean, the, the Bangles were uh, contemporaries. That's fine. The Go-Go's. We are just 10 or so years out from the princesses becoming their own thing at the company, their own franchise, their own brand. And here it was, okay, we're going to have you back up Madonna Mouse. There was this whole line of merch. There was everything set up to back this thing up and none of it sold it crashed and burned and you know the legendary landfill et video cartridge thing that's where you're going with this right that's right one mound over is the totally mini stuff (laughs) but why why did people not embrace mini as madonna that's an interesting question if you look at how disney has returned to embrace the whole mini polka dot thing and and the bow and the mickey shorts are so popular now or for that matter to look what's about to happen at Disney Hollywood Studios with the Mickey and Minnie Runaway Railway. Mm-hmm. This is the version of the character that people love. And it just, I think, with her in hot pink and with lots of jewelry and the slouchy sweater off of her shoulder, it right. just it came across as this is a timeless character that you're trying to make of this moment. And it's just sort of like... She didn't bend that way. Right. The public was like, eh, you know. Well, yeah, I, th- I think the, the public would have recognized it as inauthentic, mm-hmm. right? It's not really what Minnie Mouse is. And you can't change a character like that on a dime. Yeah. And when you think about there were people who were complaining with this mini Walk of Fame thing that Mickey got his star back in 78, mm-hmm. which was for the 50th anniversary of the introduction of the character. And why was it that... Mickey got the star and not Minnie. And the interesting thing is, here's Jody Rubin, that marketing manager I was was talking with earlier, and she was talking about how, as they're looking to keep the totally Minnie thing going in 87 and beyond, they were actually already talking with the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce, the folks who control the Walk of Fame. And they were pursuing the idea of Minnie getting her own star on Hollywood Board. And this is a direct quote from Jody right now. If Mickey has one, so should Minnie. So 32 years ago, they were trying to get this done, but it took till January 22nd of 2018 to finally close the deal. You know, I asked I asked Laurel this question before we got on the show and you know, mentioned the, the Walk of Fame thing, and Laurel brought up a good point, and that's that 
Minnie's identity is so wrapped up in Mickey, especially in the early shows, that she's she's rarely the protagonist in any of the cartoons, or she's rarely the main character. And I think that's part of the reason why, maybe. Like, I mean, she didn't have an, an identity separate from from Mickey in a lot of these things. Now, the newer cartoons, she does. Actually, she has a little bit more separation between Mickey. But I think, in as much as we're talking about two cartoon characters and stars in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. That would be the reason that I would give as to why she didn't get one earlier. She was essentially a minor character compared to Mickey. I could definitely buy into that. Part of this does have to do with the $40,000 fee that the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce these days gets from the people who are nominating those that are getting the stars. Getting back to that ceremony, and, and especially Katy Perry and her involvement with American Idol, I guess it's worth noting here that now that Disney through ABC is once again associated with American mm-hmm. Idol, there's a number of folks who are asking, well, wait a minute, Disney shut down its American Idol experience at the studio theme park back in August of 2014. And is there a possibility that they're going to circle back on that now? Is it bring that back as an attraction? And what I've flat out been told is that for the first time in forever, a frozen sing-along celebration that's not going anywhere. Right. In fact, for this past holiday season, they actually changed up the show to include songs from the holiday special, the Olaf's Frozen Adventure that aired on ABC and was uh, out in theaters for a while with Coco, with Frozen 2 coming on November 27, 2019. Everyone associated with the show has been informed that about three months out from that movie hitting theaters, they'll begin rehearsals of a new version of the first time in forever. They're going to pull two and three of the numbers out from the film, but obviously keep let it go and substitute the numbers from the frozen two. And with the notion that this will keep this interactive sing-along show going at least for the next five years or so, that's pretty much what folks have been told is that anticipate that this will probably be in place till 2022-2023 and then god help us probably they'll be putting the songs from frozen 3 in that's good to hear that in terms of the performers having some job security i think the other problem that they would run into in the studios is frankly there is no other auditorium in which they could stage american idol because remember they demoed the old hunchback theater for star wars for galaxy's edge unless they used an outdoor venue like beauty and the beast they there is not really anywhere that they could put that remember that after Toy Story Land opens and Star Wars Galaxy's Edge, there is a third land coming with all sorts of things they have been talking about, what they refer to as the black box theater, that, that they need another venue for shows. But that's another show. Uh, speaking of which, though, the, the, today on, on this podcast, we're actually introducing something kind of different. It's something we've been talking about for a while, especially for the folks who subscribe to the Bandcamp shows. We're for iTunes, this will be where we fade out. But for those of you who subscribe to the Bandcamp version of the Disney Dish show, we are doing the Bandcamp bonus. We have a, another story that we're about to launch into here, folks, um, which actually, again, keying off of an anniversary. January 3rd of this year is the 30th anniversary of the debut of Illuminations. Is it really? Yep. 30 Fantastic. years. And it only took them four tries to come up with a show, but we'll get to that in a minute. All right, folks, you've been listening to the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. We are produced fabulously by Aaron Adams. Please go on to iTunes or Stitcher or grab a piece of glass and etch 
with your own lasers. Some comments and suggestions for anything you want to hear in the show. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.